Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the latest episode of For What It's Worth podcast. Uh, This is the 64th episode, if my numbering is correct, and odds are maybe 50-50 that they are correct. I just recorded a film uh, about my future former, no, my future president and what I want from this person, man, woman, child, what I need from them, what I want from them, and how how it's going to differ from what we currently have in terms of options for political candidates in America, which is just not good, not good enough, and I'm tired of it, and so I made a film because it will change everything, clearly, and we won't have to worry about it anymore. So, for those of you <clears throat> who are new to this, I just cooked uh, two chicken breasts, barbecued them, and uh, ate those for lunch, and uh, feeling pretty good about myself. So, I'm still in Maine. I'm wearing a towel, for full disclosure here, just a towel, that's it. Oh, I have flip-flops on, too. But they're the fancy schmancy Birkenstock flip-flops that someone gave me. And uh, my clothes are outside drying because summer has arrived in Maine, finally, officially. It had been nice and cool up until two days ago, and then 90 degrees and high humidity have arrived. And when you come from a place like New Mexico where there is no humidity, it's pretty interesting to come here and feel the glove, the encompassing glove that is humidity. And uh, so I'm inside at the moment. My, My companions in this house... My wife and her family, they are gone for a couple of hours, so I hence recording the film, recording a podcast before they come back. Otherwise, it will not uh, not happen. And for those of you who are new, I start this by, by giving you an example of who this podcast is for, and then I talk about our heroes, and then I talk about our goat of the week, which is um, not greatest of all time. I mean goat as in ass, as in people who are doing dumb, selfish, crazy, corrupt things, and Sadly, there's always way more goats than there are heroes, and uh, that's probably been true historically. But here we are. This, uh, this podcast, in case you're wondering, is for anyone who practices canoe ballet. Yes, you heard that correctly. Anyone who practices canoe ballet. Yes, there is such a thing, and if you do yourself a favor, trust me on this one. Go to YouTube and type in canoe ballet, and the first film that pops up will literally explode your medulla oblongata. It will no longer be able to comprehend life because there is life before canoe ballet and there is life after. And I'm getting chills just sitting here. It could be COVID, but I think it's really chills from knowing that COVID ballet, that men in tuxedos or men in half tuxedos in their canoes playing to Celine Dion is out there. And it's wonderful and it is a it's a rainbow of, of wonderfulness for the rest of us. The hero of the, of the week, month, Denmark. Yes, Denmarka. Given, I'm giving the nod to Denmark for hosting the start of the Tour de France. That, that was the initial hero of the week. Now, even seasoned Tour de France, Tour de France riders had not seen a reaction like the Danish fans to the Tour de France. They were saying, Chris Froome said... Never seen anything like it, never heard anything like it, thought it was going to be another routine thing, and then the Danes came and showed us all why they're Danes and why they're insane and why we love them so much. And not to mention, their guy is winning the tour. <clears throat> now, the tour, I think, shot themselves in the foot. I was going to talk about, I think I'm talking about this a little bit later. Um, yeah, I'm talking about this a little bit later. Anyway, Jonas Vingegaard, he's winning the Tour de France. And uh, he's beating Tadi Pogaccia. And he's got a two, over two-minute advantage, but uh, there's one more mountain stage, and there's a time trial. Now, I think the tour, uh, I'll get to it in a minute. I think they kind of shot themselves in the foot a little bit this week. But Denmark is my hero for that, for not only um, 
starting, hosting the beginning of the tour, but also having a guy in the lead. And also the hero of the week, photojournalist. Yep, just in general. I'm not talking about YouTube bozos out shooting street photography. That's not photojournalism. I'm talking about actual photojournalists who are out like on the front lines in Ukraine. They are telling the stories. They're inside the January 6th committee sitting on the floor shooting people that are speaking at podiums and shooting witnesses and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about photojournalists who are working down on the border. They're working all over the world, and they're out there. Many of them you will never hear about. You will never uh, know their names, but you will see their work. And I am a huge believer in journalism, what's left of it. And when I see good journalism and good photojournalism, I just have to pay my respects because it is not easy to do. And it's very rare, and it's getting, it's getting more and more difficult to find anyone who's willing to pay journalists to do the kind of work that they do, and that includes all of the investigative journalism uh, outlets that are working right now. So just a, a nod in general. The go to the week. Man, I do not know even where to start here. Um, Susan Collins, let's, let's have a little Maine reference. Why not? Let's just start off with a little tip of the hat to Maine. Susan Collins for believing... Brett, 12-pack Kavanaugh, that he was not going to mess with existing law. The Supreme Court justices lied under oath, the three that came in during Trump. They all lied under oath uh, about what they, were, what they would do. We all knew that was what was happening. We knew they were lying under oath. We knew that as soon as they got in and got the majority, they would start overturning all of these classic lawsuits uh, or legal standings, which they have, starting with Roe v. Wade. They're going to now move their way down the list. But it's hard. Susan Collins is a, is a clown. Um, is just completely and utterly detached from reality if she was believing 12-pack Kavanaugh. But maybe even worse is Clarence Predator Thomas and his absolutely bonkers wife, Ginny, uh, who basically participated in an attempted coup in America but gets a pass because her husband is a Supreme Court justice. This guy has gone off the rails. I mean, completely. When you hear Clarence Thomas now spouting his philosophy about COVID vaccines and about uh, existing uh, legal cases, it is terrifying. Clearly, that guy has no friends, because if he did, they would be basically having a sit down. They would be having an intervention like, dude, save it. Like, we don't need your crazy theories on COVID vaccines and, we, and your wife. Not good. The text messages to Mark Meadows. All of these people are guilty. They are all cap. 100% guilty. If you or I or any civilian did these things, we would go to jail. We do not have the, the privilege of wealth. We do not have the privilege of power. America is as corrupt as any nation on earth, and this is just a perfect example. And in America here, just so you foreigners out there, you Euro trash, or you, uh, you, know, you hillbillies from some other part of the world, just know that when you grow up in America, you're told that we're always the good guys. And Americans in general... If I had to classify our general population, I would say that they are not very familiar with American history, and they are not very familiar with how the U.S. government operates both domestically and over overseas. They just don't know. So these kind of things are easy to pull over on people because you're, you're taught in America like we're always the good guys because they don't teach the things that the government's actually doing. And it's not to say that we don't do great things. We do, and we have, and we will continue to do so. And we give tons of money and aid and those kind of things. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying it's enough. But we do do some good things. But you cannot 
ignore, lie about, cover up the bad things. And speaking of cover up, we're going to talk about this in a minute because I just am, am, uh, am stunned by something. But to continue on this lines, for those of you out there who are, you know, potentially flag waivers, rah-rah folks who will never say anything negative about the country, I get it. We're all prideful. We're Americans. We love the country. Just remember in 2016, we had a, a line of men carrying torches screaming, the Jews will not replace us. Remember that? 2016, early on in Doofus's administration, where he got up at the podium afterwards and said there are good, sides on both, good people on both sides, and oh, told the white nationalist crowd to, quote, stand by. And you don't think that's had an effect. But any, any of you who think we're really sophisticated, that we're really progressive, that we're leading the world, that we are better than any other country, 2016, men with tiki torches yelling, the Jews will not replace us. That is who we actually are. That's not in the news anymore because so much has happened since then with Doofus and his administration that was like one day was crazier than the next. That will never, ever, ever leave my mind. That moment in 2016 when I saw that. Picket line of men, torches, the Jews will not replace us. That's America. And instead of shying away from that or lying about it or ignoring it or denying it, we have to embrace the fact that that is our country and remedy the problem. We have to fix it. And to me, that starts with education, which means we have no shot to figure this out because we just don't want to do it. And finally, let's just tip our hat here for Go to the Week to Uber. The Guardian, once again, releases an insanely good investigative report. And they had the, Par- the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers. They've done it again and again and again. And each one has significantly less impact than the one before because the population here is watching TikTok, right? They just don't care. They're still going to take Uber. I don't know a single person that deleted their Uber app on the phone. No one cares. Uber did all kinds of horrible things, both foreign and domestically. And uh, The Guardian did it again. So, wow, Uber gets the uh, go to the week. Okay. Moving on to the points. Let's recap. Who is this for? Anyone who practices canoe ballet. Number two, the hero of the week is Denmark, the country and the cyclists. And number three, go to the week. Wow, hard, toss-up, always a fight. Susan Collins, Clarence Predator Thomas and his bonkers wife, Ginny. Um, you could throw in the guys in Charlottesville with the tiki torches. They're constantly going to be on the GOAT list. And I even like forgot about some of these uh, January 6th folks that we've had uh, in front of the microphone who are clearly having a difficult time distinguishing truth from fact and also a difficult time telling the truth. Lying is at an epidemic uh proportion here in America, but I'm going to hit this at the end because I'm referencing something specific that I think impacts all of us. Point number one, I want to give you a heads up about a trilogy of books called the Africa Trilogy by, uh, once again, Danish author, uh, Jakob Herzbo, E. Herzbo, J-A-K-O-B-E-J-E-R-S-B-O. They're fantastic. Now, if you are delicate, if you're fragile, if you're a snowflake, don't read these books. If you think the world is fair, don't read these books. If you think the world isn't racist, don't read these books. If you think the, the, the goody-two-shoes people who think they're going to save the world, if you think they're actually going to save it, don't read this book or these books. But if you're like me and a bit off and you like the dark side of the world, the dark side of the moon, Africa Trilogy is fantastic. It starts with a book called Exile. Then there's a book called Revolution, I believe, is the second one, and uh, Liberty is the third. Liberty was also made into a film <clears throat> in Europe, 
These books have done really well. Now, here's the sad part. Jakob Herzbo was a journalist in Denmark, and he, at 40, was diagnosed with cancer and was dead 10 months later, which is total bummer because this guy's it, he's a good writer. And the journalism aspect comes through. And what I would describe this series of books as is a 3D novel. It's a novel about a story about Tanzan- expats in Tanzania, and it's told three-dimensionally. Because in three books, you're getting the same characters from three different planes and atmospheres and directions. Really well done. I'm about three-quarters of the way through the third book, and I just wanted to mention it because I really like them. And as you know, I read as much as humanly possible. Point number two. <clears throat> I'm 53. I missed my window. I just missed it, man. I missed it. I realized when you hit when you get past 50, and as a kid, I always looked at life as a mountain with 50 years old as the crux, as the peak in the center. And the first 50 years, you're going up. And the last 50 years, you survive as long as you can. And then you're always going down. And at 53, I can say I was dead right on. I was spot on. That is exactly what life is. And you realize at 53, you're on the downside. It's like I just climbed Mount Ventoux on my super light Cervelo. And I got to the top. And now I'm descending at 100 miles an hour. And as soon as you hit 50, time speeds up like crazy. You're still writing 2018 on your check, and it's 2024. And you're like, what the F Like, just happened? So I missed my window when it comes to the train system in America. The train system in America, for those of you who don't know, sucks. It sucks. And I'm now the Northeast and places like San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, there is public transit. Even Houston has a decent public transit system in terms of trains, light rail, whatever. There are a few other smattering of places, but we drop the ball, right? We're a nation of the automobile. We do have huge distances. The automobile was sold to us, you know, places like Los Angeles, the city of the automobile, all that nonsense, oil and gas, the auto lobby, very, very powerful organizations. But you realize at 53 that the train system will never be what I want it to be before I die. And there's a ton of stuff that falls into this category. Climate change, not happening. Not in my lifetime. Uh, The train system, uh, bikes, Bikes is full integration into American culture, not happening in my lifetime. And it's kind of a bummer because you're like, Jesus, you know, I, I, I look in the mirror and I still feel like uh, an immature, selfish, I don't know, uh, I don't just an immature guy. I feel like I'm 20. And then I look in the mirror and I'm like, holy sweet, sweet Jesus, what happened? But I miss the train system. And for those of you who live in places like Europe, and I know that the train system is not perfect, but it is just so much more better than it is here. It's a viable option when you're in Europe and you're like, hey, I'm in France. I need to go to Barcelona. I can hop on the TGV. We, don't, we have Amtrak. And just to give you an example, a few years ago, I was like, oh, I'm going to take Amtrak. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride my bike from the house in Costa Mesa. And I'm going to ride from Costa Mesa to, to um, Santa Ana, get on the train with my bike. And I'm going to train up to L.A. and then take the train from L.A. to Texas to go see my family. I'm like, cool. This is going to be great. I'm going to shoot on the train. I'm going to shoot out the windows. I'm going to shoot the stock, all this stuff. I try try to get Amtrak website to work, and I can't get it to work. I can't figure it out. So I have to call Amtrak. And I call Amtrak, and the woman's like, well, you may or may not be able to take your bike on the train. It's up to the individual conductor, and he'll make the decision when you get to the train. And I said, so basically what you're saying is I could ride to Santa Ana, then realize I'm not able to take my bike. And she goes, yes. And I said, well, that's not good. And she goes, oh, by the way, if you need to, if you are going to, if they do let you take your bike, you need to put it in a box. I said, well, you guys have boxes, right? No. 
Can you buy them at the station? No. I said, how am I supposed to carry a box on my bike to the train station? No reply. Then I'm looking at this thing, the route, and instead of going from L.A. to Texas, I'm going from L.A. to Chicago. Then there's a little bus emblem. And she, you know, she sends me this, emails me this or whatever, uh, this itinerary. And I'm like, what is this little bus thing? And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, we have to put you on a bus for 11 hours. And then we'll take you to another train, and then that train will eventually get you to Texas. And I'm like, well, how much is it? And it was like four times the cost of an airline ticket. That's Amtrak. So it's not, it doesn't work really. I put it this way. I've never taken an Amtrak train that arrived on time ever in my entire lifetime. They've always been late. Some have been pretty close to being on time and others were literally days late. I once broke down uh, in the middle of like Nebraska and then we got hit by a blizzard and you couldn't even see out the train windows. There was so much snow. Um, so, and I was, that was like 24 hours late. You know, it sucks. And so I missed it and that sucks. All right, let's talk point number three. This is a good one. Mm. Sorry. I got a little chicken. My little chicken came in from right field. Mm. That was like an Ichiro Suzuki laser beam from right field right into my mouth. Mm. Barbecue chicken. Okay. The AR-15. Let me give you a little explanation here. What's, what's happening? What's really happening in the gun situation in America? I have a little bit of experience with this. Grew up shooting. Father was a competitive shooter. I was a competitive shooter. I had a college scholarship to, to, to be a shooter, which I never actually utilized. Uh, I've shot an AR-15 many times, and my father owned one for kind of relatively short amount of time because we hated it. It was not really a gun that we used for anything. My, bother, my father loved guns. He would buy and sell guns all the time. He would shoot something, learn it, figure out what he loved, didn't like, sell it, get something else, do the same thing. He loved it. And from the time I was a kid... In Indiana, after dinner, he would go in his den. He would get out his little gun safe. He would open this thing up. It had a row of pistols in there, many of which were like novelty pistols. They were functional, but they were not guns that you would compete with. They were just like target guns and whatever. But 45s and 40s and, and uh, 9 mils, 44 Special, um, 44 Mag occasionally, 357s, 38s, 22s, 25s, um, everything. And he also did the single action Colt revolvers. He competed in those as well. So like the old cowboy guns, if you will. And also we did the same thing with rifles and shotguns. And, you know, I've shot Purdy shotguns that are handmade, Italian, beautiful, incredible, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 guns. They were not ours, but I was able to shoot them through my shooting career, if you will. And I had a Ruger Red Label 12 over under with removable chokes. That was my main gun. Very, very basic. At the time, it was one of the few shotguns made in the U.S., very simple metalwork, simple tooling. I loved that gun. Uh, very basic, not expensive, whatever. That was a gun I did a lot of competing with, which was which was a very, very casual, inexpensive gun compared to a lot of the people I was shooting against. And then pistols, you know, I've shot 45s and 9 mils. I think I like now. I was always a 45 guy, but I do like the 9 mils. But here's the point. Dad bought an AR-15. And at the time, you could go to a gun show and you could buy a pin separately from the gun that turned it into a fully automatic. You could do this with a lot of a lot of different guns. We didn't have a we just had a semi semi-automatic, you know, pull the trigger once, get one round AR15. But we shot it and we didn't like it. It really wasn't a gun that you would use for anything. And so, you know, that's a gun designed to shoot people basically. And when you hear these second amendment nutbags out there, 
talking about, oh, I need raccoon. I have raccoons, and the AR-15 is the best gun. No, it's not. It's not the best gun to shoot raccoons. It's not. There's absolutely no reason to have an AR-15 other than the idea that you think at some point you're going to shoot another person. That's really it. So the Second Amendment, and again, everyone I grew up with, everyone had guns. Everyone shot guns all the time. The Second Amendment people are off their rocker. They are stone-cold tripping. And here's the thing. My father, historically Republican, right-wing guy, but also normalized right-wing, and then Rush came along and radicalized my father, and he went off the complete deep end. And for 15 years, the last 15 years of his life, my father would kept saying the same thing every year. These jackbooted thugs, the Democrats, are coming to take my guns. I heard this all, every, every time I saw my father. That, quote, jackbooted thugs, which is stolen right from the Nazi propaganda or the, or the tales of the Nazis in World War II. That was jackbooted thugs. That was something that was popular in describing the Nazis, um, rightly so. They're some of the worst people in the history of the world. And my father would say, these Democrats, these jackbooted thugs. And again, this was the rush programming into my father of uh, equating Democrats with Nazis and all the nonsense. And every year I'd be like, Really? The Democrats are coming to take your guns, these pacifists, these people. And every year I'd be like, where are they? I'm like, I'm waiting for these people to come to the house to take your guns. But, you know, another year just went by. They're not taking your guns. And, of course, I would be like dipshit to my father. They're not coming to take your guns, right? I've been hearing this from him. I heard it 15 years. He died in 2005. I still hear it all the time from these same right-wing wacko Second Amendment people. These guys cherry pick the Bill of Rights, they cherry pick the Constitution, whatever whatever fits their lonely, bored, I can't get laid, I can't read in an eighth grade level chat room existence. That's what these Second Amendment guys, all of these young guys you see standing outside of courthouses, all tacticaled up with their AR-15s, they're at home in the chat rooms talking about what Romeo Zero to get. They don't know their history, they don't know anything. All they're doing is saying, I'm so excited I've got this stuff. This AR, this Romeo Zero, all my tactical gear, all this stuff, even though I've never been in the military, I've got all this stuff because I've got absolutely nothing else going on in my life. No one is asking them to come anywhere to do this. This is just something you do when you're absolutely bored and you've got nothing else to do. But the AR-15 has become the lightning rod. A lot of the, the sort of gun folks that I know that are logical We'll have a conversation often in private, or they'll say things to me that they may not say to others or in public or even around other people that are gun owners, which is, I don't care if they ban the AR-15 or assault. There's no reason that civilians in the U.S. should have military weapons. But here is the flip side of this argument. So hear me out. If you are anti-gun, if you are someone who is trying to ban assault, assault weapons, you had better, for the love of crap, get your terminology down. This the Democrats are brain dead. They they can't even do the research to figure out how to use the correct terminology which plays directly into the hands of the second amendment people. Which is we're banning semi-automatics. No you're not. You're banning assault weapons. Every gun I have is a semi-automatic. The 22 that my grandfather gave me is a semi-automatic. Oh, well, we're not banning that. Well, you just told me you were because you can't get you you can't be bothered to learn the terminology. News media, television news media is the worst. These are not journalists, these are talking heads that read teleprompters and whoever's doing their research sucks because they 
they can't get it right either. Uh-oh, hang on. I feel a tremor in the force. All right. The family came back much sooner than I thought. Now I am literally outside doing the podcast, which I have never done this podcast outside before. I have no idea if this mic's going to pick up the wind. It's probably 90 and uh, high humidity, so I got a good sweat going, and it's probably going to be loud, but there we are. So um, I, that was the last point I was hitting this AR-15 thing. You can't really—this has become—and look, what's happened with these weapons over the—let's just take the last year, not including all of the mass shootings from before— it's just unparalleled in history, and it's unparalleled in any other country in the world. And everybody knows that the problem is these weaponry, but it, but it's become so politicized and so ridiculous with people, you know, and again, the, the Second Amendment people just cherry pick the rights. It's like, you can't tell me what to do with this gun, but I can tell you as a woman what to do with your body. Uh, you can't tell me to wear a mask. All of this nonsense. We've just become so politicized, it's just impossible to see straight. So, But the point, too, is that the AR-15 was just not a, not a fun gun to use, really, in particular, compared to everything else that's out there. And every time I see these people standing in front of a courthouse in their tactical gear with their faces covered, because you're gutless, you can't show your face, it's just bizarre. It just, again, it just reminds me of that 20, 2016 Charlottesville moment where I'm like, is really, this is who we are now? Good grief. Um, point number four, Trump did it. The whole January 6th thing, that's my entire assessment based on January 6th um, footage, data, evidence, testimony under oath, by the way. Does, and for those of you out there, and again, I berate a lot of the right-wingers. I have a lot of right-wing friends. I have a right-wing family. Um, and I love busting their chops because they're so serious about everything. Uh, my entire assessment in three words, Trump did it, but he didn't do it alone. He did it with the help of the Jim Jordans of the world, the Mark Meadows of the world. All of these people are guilty. I think every Republican that has taken this, the steel idea and run with it and the, just the absolute bogus, whether it's Arizona, vote count is wrong, or I heard some clown talking about votes being stolen by satellites and all the nonsense that QAnon people are, are talking about now. But it wasn't, it wasn't alone. You know, Trump is too dumb to do this stuff alone. He needed minions, and thankfully for him, there were tons of them around. But he did it. The flip side of that is that the, the Dems are clueless and out of touch, but nothing will happen to these people. I would be very, 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 very surprised if anything happens happens to any, any legal things happen to anything from Trump down. Trump, his family, his cabinet, his admin, his assistants, his chief of staff, None of these people, I, I imagine, will have any repercussions from doing this at all. And I think things are only going to get worse because when the Republicans win the midterms in, in November, they're going to start absolutely throwing away any logic, any rule book, any decency, and they're going to just absolutely wreak havoc on American culture and society. But Trump did it. I don't think there's any, any doubt that what he did was criminal and he's a traitor. And he should he should go to jail, but I don't think it will ever happen. I I think a lot of the lefts, the snowflakes out there who think the world's still fair, that something's going to happen, but I don't think so. Point number five is about status quo. And for some reason, I was never really in tune with status quo. And what I mean by status quo is sort of a cultural, societal status quo. Go to school, get a job, get married, have children buy a house, save your money, maximize profit, take the first the, the 40 most productive years of your life and dedicate it to work, hope to make it to retirement, hope to have enough money to survive, 
hope you live through the diseases that you will inevitably get. That just seems so sucky to me. And it's not. It's not. For a lot of people, that is their goal in life, and, it, and it's in some ways a commendable goal. And I'm not knocking people who feel like that is something that they want to do or how they want to live. Wow, that is a giant construction truck going three times the speed limit. I'm telling you, man, they have little arrangements with law enforcement where they're ne- they never get pulled over for speeding because people want to get the construction and the work done during the summer months. And there's a little wink, wink, nod, nod that happens. Or there maybe there's even some little financials that tra- take place behind the scenes. It's America, remember. Money talks. So when I'm on the beach in Maine and I look out at the families, I always am embraced by this idea of status quo, and it and it's interesting. It's bizarre, and I'm not taking. I'm not saying it's bad in any way, shape, or form. It's just from someone me, who's never had that as a goal. You know, I knew I was never going to have kids. I knew when I was young, not having them. Love kids. Think I'm a good uncle. Sometimes, kind of. I'm kind of a absentee uncle. Because I don't have that much connection and communication with my nieces and nephews. But when I do, I think it's okay. But, and I love kids in general. I just don't want any of my own. But status quo is bizarre. How do you feel about status quo? Was that your, your ideal? I mean, I have family members whose idea and goals in life are so completely different. Immediate family. So completely different from mine. It's bizarre that we came from the same parents. That we had this, went to the same schools same education and my life view and their life view is so completely different and it's just i just found it bizarre and wanted to mention that point number six the xt4 versus the x100v i think the x100v is the latest version of that camera but i could be wrong about that just i'm just going to say x100 now i i've been trashing the x100 for a long time because i've owned two versions of that camera and didn't like either one thankfully the first one only lasted two weeks when i dropped it and broke it then I got to replaced it and I shot that camera and I was like, why did I buy this? I don't like this camera. I don't like these files. There's nothing about this I like except the idea of what the X100 is. This is the camera that everybody, everybody, and I mean everybody from every different genre of photography wanted a camera that was a small rangefinder camera with a real viewfinder, no shutter lag, and a full frame sensor. And the X100 was as close and affordable. X100 was the closest thing except for the full-frame sensor. But the problem is that lens and sensor combination does not provide a file that I like at all. So I've been trashing this camera for a long time now. I love trashing that camera. I don't like that camera. Any, I don't like anything about it except the size and the idea of what it was supposed to be. But people are like, Milner, you're a hypocrite. You're evil. You're a joke. We don't like you because it's the same sensor that's in the X-T4 or something like that. X-T2, whatever, same sensor. I'm like, I don't care. It's the lens combination with the sensor, people. I can put a 50.95 on my X-T2, which is on there right now. I have a 50 to 140 2.8 on the, on the X-T4. And I've got a neutral density filter coming tomorrow. So I can start shooting a lot more footage with both the long zoom and the short zoom. I should have gotten the 10 millimeter short zoom instead of the 16 because I need a little bit wider than what that 16 is giving me because of the small sensor. But the X-T4, I can put a 0.9550 on there. I can put a super fast 35 on there, a 23, whatever you want to call it. And it has a very, very different look than the X100. And by the way, maybe... Maybe a grand total of two people ever in the history of the 
X100 cameras being on the market, maybe I found two people ever whose work I look at with that camera and say, that's good work. The rest are not good pictures. I went on YouTube and typed in X100V or X100. And I got all these professional full-time YouTuber street photography people. And there was not a single one who was making decent images with that camera. Just buildings. It was just buildings and streets and random people. That's it. If that's what you're doing, sure, that camera, the X100 is great. It looks cool. It's very small and light. You can carry it all day long and never think about it. The problem is your work sucks. It just doesn't look good. It's not interesting. And that camera isn't any, it's not enough of any one thing. That's the problem. Again, love the size. Love the look. Give me a full frame sensor with an F2. I think it works. Never going to happen. So give me a 0.95. Give me a 1.4 instead of a 2. Give me a 1.2 instead of a 2. Maybe it starts to get better. The problem is the work. And I guess this speaks to another sub point, which again, is the vast majority of the work I see, especially on YouTube. Not in the industry of photography. There's plenty of good work being done in the industry. YouTube is just rife with great production value and horrible work. That's that. I know that sounds harsh, and I know that there will be people out there that are say, oh, you're just hating on these people. No, I'm not hating on them. I'm stating a fact because I have training and I have history and I have knowledge about what good photography actually is, and many of them don't because they're basing the quality of their work on how many views and subscriptions they have. And those are two unrelated things. So again, X100V, I see subpar. It's buildings. I swear to God, people walking the streets and making pictures of buildings and calling it street photography and talking about the camera that made it. You could have made it with a Pentax 110. Who cares? It's a picture of a building and not like a beautiful Robert Reich architectural image. No, it's just a random snapshot of a building and it drives me crazy. So the reason why I like the X-T4 as opposed to the X-100 is just that. I can change the lenses out and get something that has much more of a distinctive look, that has more contrast, that has more fall off, all that stuff. Point number seven, Tour de France. Someone for the love of Christ attack. Just kidding. Um, I think uh, finally our, our prayers were answered because we, the first week of the tour was absolutely insanely good. And now, by the way, I've not watched a single stage live other than having the tour site open where it's like a little dot. You can follow these dots. Um, they make it very difficult to watch the tour in America unless, you're, unless you have a TV, which I don't. And um, it's just BS, typical you know, restrictions and all that. I don't need to see it live. I don't need to hear it. I don't need to watch it. I will eventually. But, you know, normally the, these, the teams come into the Tour de France, you've got two or three strong teams, you've got a, maybe three, four, five guys total who have any chance in hell of winning. It was very similar to that this year. We knew that the Dane, Bingagagad, and uh, Tadi Pagacha were the two top, top two threats, Jarrett Thomas, a few others scattered around, but that's really about it. And the guys who were good a few years ago, they're falling off very, very quickly. When the end comes for a professional cyclist, it is harsh and unforgiving. And you can see that happening here. Uh, Chris Froome had one decent day, but after his crash, he's never he will never really return to the form before, which is too bad because, um, you know, he's a, he was an interesting rider. But um, COVID also hit the peloton, which I find interesting. And for all these bozos out there who claiming uh, COVID's over, <laughs> COVID's over. I don't even, I don't even think about it anymore. Well. Today, according to The Guardian, which typically has far more accurate information about COVID than American news outlets do, 
117,000 cases, up 24%, deaths up 33%, and that's just in the U.S. Um, they are reporting, even the conservative sources are reporting that there's uh, probably 10 times that, so over a million cases a day. Everyone around me here in, May, uh, in Maine is getting COVID. I was with someone the other day who had it two weeks ago and is cognitively impaired in a major way, and that was sad. He told us, you know, when, he, when we hung out, he said, look, I'm, you're not going to recognize me. I'm not quite the same. I'm having trouble finishing thoughts and sentences. And this is a guy that is a five-star dude. Very smart, very interesting, very funny, very talented, and just driven and constantly on the go. And he was really impacted. And it was, he'll, he'll get over it. He'll get better, I think, because he's a healthy guy and he's driven. But I was like, whoa. And then yesterday, someone was sitting in the same chair that I'm sitting in right now, and their phone rang, and they were told that they were exposed to someone who had COVID earlier that morning. And it's exploding. Everybody's getting it everywhere, and it hit the Peloton. And for those clowns out there, if you're one of those people that says COVID is over, um, tell that to Tadi Pagacha from the Tour de France because he's lost, what, five of his 10 teammates to COVID? And, they, and that's, that's also, by the way, the tour allowing someone who tested positive to still ride in the tour. They let one of these guys ride the day he turned positive, tested positive. They were like, well, you know, we're going to let you ride anyway, because the, they do not want to admit how bad it is. My guess is when Pagacha had his bad day, like stage 10, 11, 12, somewhere around there, when Bingegaard really took over the tour, that day and the day before and the day before, Pagacha had lost multiple teammates to COVID. My guess is he probably had COVID, and I have no evidence of this whatsoever, but based on his performance that day, he might have had COVID, and that's what derailed his, his Tour de France so far. Now, they've got one mountain stage left. Vingegaard looks incredibly strong. I can't imagine unless there's a crash that he will lose the Tour unless Pagacha has an insane time trial and overtakes him, which is possible, although um, the Dane is a decent time trialist. The point is, COVID blew up the Tour of Switzerland uh, a few weeks ago. And, of course, all the clowns out there claiming it's over. You know, I, I, a lot of my, like, vegan friends who think Rich Roll is the, is the be-all, end-all, he's had it. He just got COVID for the second time. I know people who've had it three times. It is not going away. We, we ensured it is not going away because we are babies and, and refuse to wear masks. If you go in public right now, inside, in public places, with people, without a mask, odds are, I'm running the numbers, the data, and the math, you will get COVID, whether you've had it before or not. Again, you may I know somebody who just got it, had no symptoms, didn't know they had it. I know a handful, actually more than a handful, I know probably a couple of dozen people who have it right now who are very sick. I know some people who've had it for 18 months and have been unable to leave their house with long COVID. Again, we just botched it so bad. And when it hit the tour, I just kind of was like, no kidding. Of course it hit the tour. If all these people on that UAE team were positive, there are positives on other teams too. My guess is the tour is probably covering those up or just not talking about it because they don't want it to change the tour. There's a lot of money on the line. Okay, point number eight, a 35-millimeter Leica Q3. Um, I don't know, and I've said this on other other places um, out there as well, that the 
I've, I got to fondle a Leica Q2. It's a very, very nice camera. Very interesting camera. Very unique. Not perfect, but unique. Very expensive. But I think it's worth it when you consider the fact that you're getting a camera and a lens. And it's a 1.7. And it's 47 megapixel full frame. And it has the 35, 50, 75 crop. And it's built incredibly well. That's a lot. So you're paying a lot, but you're getting a lot. And also it's a Leica. So, you know, you're paying for that as well. I don't know anyone. No, I take that back. Someone did reach out. There's one guy out there one guy who likes the fact that it's a 28 everyone else wants a 35 my guess is they won't make it because there's probably some technical logistical hoop they have to jump through that works with a 28 and doesn't with a 35 that's my guess so i was uh the other day screwing around and i was looking at the Q q2 and i also did a search for q3 not much data. There's a Q3 coming, maybe 60 megapixels, maybe a headphone jack. I don't know, whatever. But I probably will not get that because I'm invested in the Fuji system. And my guess is by the time the Leica Q3 comes around, Fuji will have announced a high res something or other, maybe an X Pro 4 with a 40 or 50 megapixel sensor. That's a very enticing, appealing camera to me. I, I've never had an X Pro camera, but I want one. And one of my students in Albania, David, had a one four, uh, X-Pro3 with a 16-1.4, which is a 24-millimeter equivalent 1.4. Really nice camera. I like the size of it. I like the feel of it. I like the functionality. I like the weird screen on the back that doesn't allow you to chimp very easily. I like the rangefinder. There's a ton. And I think if they up the res a little bit, and I can get a really fast lens, like a 1412.95, I think that camera would be tailor-made for me and probably it's a lot cheaper than the Leica and it will probably potentially be out before the Leica although my guess is that will be around the same time so as I'm doing this and I'm losing my mind online doing camera searches I uh one of my students in Albania had a Nikon D850 and that is a, just an absolutely brilliant camera it, it brilliant in terms of ergonomics how it feels in your hand and capability I was like Oh my God, it had been so long since I had a Nikon digital camera in my hand. I was like, good grief, this thing is nice. And oh, by the way, that camera's been out for quite a while, and it's not, it's not their mirrorless line, which is getting all the hot and bothered buzz like everybody, others, everybody else's mirrorless line. So I, looked, I went online and looked at Nikon, and there's like the Z5, Z6, Z7, Z7 II, and I'm looking, and these are like their quote-unquote smaller mirrorless full-frame stuff, and they look really good. And then I saw the Z9. Now, first of all, this would be a tough camera for me because on the back of the camera alone, there must be 15 to 18 buttons, at least. I mean, I looked at those buttons. The, Fu the Fuji X-T2 has like four buttons. I don't know what three of them do. Legitimately, I'm not joking. I don't know what those three buttons do. One of them is like a Q menu. That's the only thing I know. I don't know anything about the X-T2. I've had that camera for five years. 2018, 19, 20, 21, 20. Yeah, I've had it for five years, almost. Um, I don't know what those buttons do. I know like two of the menus. That's it. So the Z9, when I saw the back of it, I was like, I'd never figure that. I literally would never figure it out unless a Nikon guy came to the house and trained me. However, looking at the price point and the capabilities of that camera... That is the most incredible machine I think I've ever seen. That is maybe the most incredible camera I have ever seen in my life. And it's less money than a Leica Q3. 
which is just astounding. Now it's much bigger, it's much heavier, it's much more complex. The lenses are much bigger, much heavier, more complex, all of that stuff. But I have to say, Nikon, I was impressed. Point number nine, I did my fastest ever 40K on my bicycle by accident. I've been doing like 30 mile rides every other day here just to keep a level of fitness. Very simple cycling in Maine, flat, no wind, no elevation. It's I can ride all day. I can hammer as hard as I want over 30 miles and never really suffer that bad, which is kind of fun, actually. Um, and then I got back and my Garmin was like, hey, you set a personal best for 40K. And I'm like, had no idea. Wasn't tracking, didn't know. It just did it. And there it was. So I kind of felt good about myself. And what I'm saying is I'm just as good as anyone in the Tour de France. That this clown from Denmark who's winning right now is only winning because I didn't enter. And so um, even though my bike weighs four times the amount that his does, and I had a, a martini and a beer last night, I could still win. And uh, because I think 40K is further than any distance that they're riding. Don't hold me to that, but I think I'm close. Point number 10. I realized something in Albania. Um, I realized something that I should have known a long time ago that I might have known, but I had blocked it out. Wow, there's a certain kind of bird going insane behind me i got my binoculars are inside the the forest here the woods is so dense it's almost impossible to spot these things because there's so much foliage whereas in new mexico you can see them from like 50 miles out you can see any kind of movement but i learned something and that in albania i learned that my skill is in reading human tea leaves my skill is in reading the tea leaves of another human being with a camera in their hand and I can do that by watching their physicality in the world. And each student moves different. Each human moves different. Their physicality is different. And that translates into the photographs. And then within the photographs are the tells of who the person is. And I realized because, and it had been a while since I'd done any teaching in person, that because I would look at work and see patterns and connections that often the photographer can't see. And so, and a couple of times, not with everybody, but a few people, within five minutes of looking at work, I said, here's your engagement point. Here's your first image of this scene, and the next scene, and the next scene, and the next scene, and they're at the same distance, and from this angle, and they'll look at your second. And the people said, I never knew that. I never saw that. I didn't know I was doing that. And that is a really fun thing. I can read your body. I can read your movement and I can read your images and then see patterns in those images, which is a lot of fun. And that's my job on these workshops is when we're teaching photography is to see those things, help you see those things, and then just aim in a certain, help you aim in a direction. The student is doing most of the work and I'm, my goal is to just provide little clues here and there. And then and that translates also to the books, whereas it could be a typeface, it could be the sequencing of an image, it could be taking two images off of a spread, reducing one and eliminating the other, or reducing one in size and increasing the size of the other. Very, very simple things. Most of the students who are taking these classes are, are well on their way. You know, they've, they've done this enough. They've, they're dedicated to photography, but there's little tiny clues that I can often see that they can't. They can't. And the same thing happened to me when I was coming up as a photographer, working with editors who could see through me in a way because I couldn't see through myself. And that's really fun. Okay, point number 11, electric bike riders who don't pedal. F you. F you. If you bought an electric bike 
bicycle and you don't pedal, you just go out and rip off 30 miles with full throttle and not pedaling, F you. The only reason I say that is I'm sitting here in Maine and there's a hill in front of this house. And there are electric, now all of the hotels and the Airbnbs and the B&Bs and all the other places you can stay around this area, pretty much all of them, except for one that I can think of, they all supply electric bikes. And you get tons of people who don't pedal. They just electric bike around. I just think that is the most horrendous, gutless, awful misuse of appropriation of materials that I've ever seen in my life. It's just not cool. You cannot do that. It's so bad. You're going to burn through the charge, go back, plug it in, go have your Mai Tai on the patio. I can't stand that. Just throw me a bone. Just every mile, just act like you're pedaling, like the old mopeds with the pedals on them. Constantly let down. Okay, point number 12. The more signs on a neighborhood the less happy the people in that neighborhood. So this 30-mile ride that I do in the morning, it goes through, I would say, let's just say four neighborhoods. There's a bunch of rural areas. So there's technically houses and maybe like some kind of rural neighborhoods, but I don't count those. I'm counting these peninsulas that I do short out and backs on. Most of the time I'm on main roads, no pun intended. And then I do these little short out and backs on peninsulas. And I go through three peninsulas. Two of them are permit only, no parking, no loitering, no fishing, no unloading. So they won't even let people drive up to unload to go to the beach. That's a new set of signs that have come up. So you can, not only can you not park there, you can't stop and unload your kids. So yeah, that's how, that's what happens when rich white people get a hold of uh, power, right? They, but here's the thing. I ride into these neighborhoods and one of them is so bad that I ride into it on purpose because the people are so unhappy. The signs on this neighborhood start all the way out on the main road that goes north, south, up and down the coast. The signs start all the way there and they go all the way into this area and everything is like no skateboarding, no one wheels, no bicycles, no stopping and unloading, no parking, nothing. No one can come in here without permitting. It's 99.9% white, 99.9% generational wealth. These houses have been passed down and passed down and passed down. These are the same people who try to take public beaches and make them private because they don't want anyone around. But I go into the neighborhood out of perversity because they are so unhappy. And when I come in on a bicycle, everyone looks at the ground. No one waves. No one says hello. The women look terrified. They look absolutely terrified of me. And the men look angry that I'm even allowed in the neighborhood on a bicycle. And I do it just because of that. I love this. I'm, I have a perverse fascination with unhappy people. And I realized there's a direct correlation between the number of restrictions and signs and the happiness level of the people in the neighborhood. The more signs, the less happy. The third peninsula I ride has no signs. And everyone is cool. Everyone waves. Everyone says hello. Everyone's like, hey, how's it going? And then one guy, I was like a quarter of a mile away from a guy who had one of those weird like round fishing hats that your grandfather wore. It has like, only has like a one inch bill and it's round. So the bill goes all the way around your head, but the hat's just kind of pointed. It's like a pointless hat, unless you're trying to keep sun off your bald spot, then it works great, but it has no effect outside of that. I see this guy coming. He's a quarter mile away before I smell the weed. And it's a sweet, stinky weed. And it's blow, wind's blowing in my direction, so I smell the weed a quarter mile away. And he is walking as slow as you could possibly walk without being stopped. And he is so happy to see me. And 
That's the kind of people that live in this neighborhood with no signs. It's eight in the morning. He's baked off his gourd. And he's like, hey. And when I went by him, he was so happy to see me that it looked like he just wanted me to stop and talk, which I almost did. But I was on a clock and had to get back and make some blurb stuff. So I couldn't do it. My point, you put up all these signs, you put up fences, you put up restrictions, you're a miserable sot. And most of the people in your neighborhood are as well because I see this every other day. Again, I am fascinated by this. Men look at the ground, women look terrified, everyone is unhappy, and guess what? You deserve it for putting those signs up. Okay, point number 13, and we have two more points to go and that's it. Point number 13 is law enforcement has to stop lying. And the thing is, I respect law enforcement. I do. As a whole, I know that you got good cops and bad cops. Same thing with Border Patrol, ICE, Secret Service, um, all of these institutions and organizations. They have good people and bad people, just like any other industry out there. But law enforcement is not an easy job. It's very, very dangerous, very tricky, very complicated, and it's hard. And so you have to stack the advantage in in your favor to get favor with the community, like in the old days when people knew the police in their neighborhood, guys patrolled on foot, all of those kind of things, which we don't have anymore. But the problem is when law enforcement lies, it erodes the entire thing. So for example, just this week alone, Secret Service lying about text messages on January 6th. Not good. Clearly not telling the truth, clearly hiding things, clearly creating criminal activity by deleting all of those records. That is wrong. Own it. Stop weaseling out of it. You've got to own it from the top down and say, you know what? That was illegal. We shouldn't have done that. We got to own this. Uvalde, the reporting, the reporting that's happened in Uvalde, how many times? Eight organizations in that hallway. Every single one of them has lied multiple times. That is just not good enough. So when people, and I'm not for defunding the police. I'm not anti-police. I would say the same thing if I went to the grocery store and I was buying apples that are covered in DDT. And I said to the guy, dude, are these apples have DDT on them? No, not at all. Go ahead, buy them. And then I ate them and got cancer. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, sorry, they was covered in DDT. If the guy at the grocery store is lying, he's got to step up and own it. And I would call him on it. So why is that not applicable to law enforcement? Because law enforcement, it seems like every time I turn around, is boldface lying, and then they get caught. Look at all of the shootings. Look at all of these unarmed people shot in the back, running away. Every every couple of months, another one comes out. Some guy killed in custody. Some guy damaged in custody. Um, you know, violating people's rights at traffic stops. You've got uh, police officers arguing with each other, threatening to arrest each other. All of this stuff, and then when confronted, they lie. They lie. Uvalde, lie on top of lie on top of lie. Secret Service, lie on top of lie on top of lie. So if you want respect, you've got to stop the lying. And this speaks to culture and management from the top down. And again, policing is not easy. You know how I know? Because I've ridden around with cops in cities all over the place. From sunset to sunup. And watch what they do in the middle of the night. And it's scary. It is scary, scary business. I've seen them take military-grade weapons off of people. I've seen them get threatened. I've seen them run into burning houses. I've seen them looking at dead bodies at crime scenes. 
it's not easy. It's not fun. Anybody who tells you different is clueless and doesn't know what it's like to be out there. And my experience is less than 1% of less than 1% of what these people are going through on a daily basis. So I get it. It's not easy, but this has to change because it's eroding the trust in law enforcement. It's eroding the entire system. And we, we can't have that and we need it. You know, we need the system, unfortunately. Last thing, this is my public service announcement, and this is what I'm going to do for all of you because I care. I am going to establish a pre-crime unit straight from Minority Report. If you haven't seen that movie, the original Minority Report with Tom Cruise, um, you should. It's a very interesting movie. not saying it's perfect, but it's good. It's kind of legendary in the tech world, in the science fiction world. Minority Report had something called a pre-crime unit. And this is a unit that could see into the future, saw crimes taking place, and then went back and stopped them before they happened. That's in theory what was happening. Yes, there's more complexity to it. Whatever. I'm going to establish a pre-crime unit for tattoos. Because when I go to the beach now, the number of bad tattoos has now reached COVID pandemic levels. It is horrendous. And I'm going to establish a pre-crime unit which determines which people are making the bad decisions and goes back in time and stops it before it happens. Because if I see another tattoo on a thigh, the front of a thigh that's halfway under a pair of shorts, jean shorts typically, um, I'm going to lose it. I can't handle it. So like pre-crime unit, for example, gets a red ball, you know, red ball, boom, comes down the little tube and it's like tribal tattoo on an arm in a South Carolina beach neighborhood pre-crime unit goes into action goes down there rips that guy out of the tattoo parlor rips the arm off i mean just to make sure that it doesn't happen again and then it solves the problem so that in 2022 when that guy goes on vacation and comes up here we don't have to look at it and i think that's a pretty good public service and that's all i'm going to say about that that's it that was for what it's worth podcast it's 115 p.m. 1315 on the 20th of July. I'm going to go cut this, edit this, get it online, cut and edit the film I recorded earlier, and then start in on learning uh, some filmmaking skills. And then tomorrow I got right back up again, blurb, blurb hits, calls, meetings. And then Friday night, I'm doing something called The Crit House, which is... Um, Myself and an editor or a creative director from National Geographic, we're going to be looking at two bodies of work that are in book form. We're going to be talking about that stuff. So anyway, that's it. I hope you're well, and I'll be back with more.